This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Good day to you on the program today, in-depth on President Biden's State of the Union speech. I think I have a better idea to fight inflation. Lower your costs, not your wages. We should all agree the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police. Tonight I call on the Senate to pass, pass the Freedom to Vote Act. Passed the John Lewis Act, Voting Rights Act. The State of the Union is strong because you, the American people, are strong. We are stronger today. Poll numbers, well, they matter. And they really just give you a sense of where politicians stand with the public at any given time. What you and I both know is that there are midterm elections coming this fall and how the Democrats and Republicans do rests a great deal on how the current president is doing. President Biden's public approval rating is important. So let's talk about that with Anthony Salvanto, CBS News Director of Elections and Surveys. Anthony, thanks for being with us. Jeff, it is so great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so post State of the Union, how did the president's message get through? Did he succeed in reaching the American public? Well, with speech watchers, he got really strong approval. So we He did. He did. We surveyed a representative sample of speech watchers right afterwards, right after he got done, and he got 78% approval for the speech. Now, with that in my second beat, I have to say that to some degree he was talking to the converted because it was Democrats who tuned in more so than Republicans did. That is really typical, Jeff, for a state of the union in this very partisan day and age. When you see a Republican administration, you see more Republicans tune in to a speech. Um, so, so there were more Democrats watching, and I say that right after that, that big approval number. But nonetheless, there were a couple of places where I would really point out he was able to move the needle. Um, one that stood out for me, Jeff, was in the idea of whether or not his policies could lower inflation. Because he came in with very low approval ratings on that, and specifically people had been saying in the polling that he wasn't focused enough on it. And so before the speech, these speech watchers, less than half of them thought that his policies could lower inflation. And then after the speech, what they heard, 64% of them, almost two-thirds, said that they thought that 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 his policies could lower inflation. So – That's the kind of thing I think politically a president wants to see some movement, at least among the folks who who took the time and and tuned in, Jeff. What can you tell us about how you poll during a speech like that? Can you see minute to minute how the 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 public is or the people watching the speech are viewing certain aspects of the speech? Can you can you get a minute to minute breakdown? In this one, we get their reactions afterwards with a series of quick questions. And the way you set that up is that in the days leading up to the speech, you do a representative sample, a large one across the country. You ask people if they're planning to watch. And then if they agree, they'll take a survey right afterwards as well. So that immediate reaction is a survey Uh, with that series of questions like the ones I was describing. Do you think what you heard would lower inflation? Do you think what you heard would help deal effectively with Russia? 
And so you get their reaction in that way. And you make sure that the people that you've interviewed right after the speech look like everyone that you knew was watching because you had done that pre-speech survey. So you have the parameters for what the audience um, is looking like. And then you look at that versus the folks who actually did who actually did watch. That's how you set up uh, an instant reaction poll like that. A um, minute to minute measure is something that's possible. It wasn't what we did here, but a minute to minute measure. Um, oftentimes, I when I see those, and again, we didn't do one here, um, you often find that that partisans who are you know, on the president's side, like a lot, and people who were tuned in who aren't on his side tend to not like a lot. So you get more, in, in my view right now, out of just getting people's overall emotions and reactions right afterwards with these questions. That's really interesting. I I, I wonder, based on this speech, there, there was this bipartisan uh, note coursing through this speech. Uh, did you get a read from the people watching it, what they thought about that. Yeah, one of the things that stands out is what people thought would happen with the war um, in, in the war in Europe and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Because coming into this, Jeff, it was the number one thing that people said they wanted to hear about in this speech. And that was really striking because for weeks before Russia invaded Ukraine, we were talking about inflation. We were talking about the economy. And then, of course, you know, about the pandemic as, as well. And then it was news of the day. That rose to be the number one topic. So there were two key things coming out of the speech for this. The first one was that, was that seven in 10 speech watchers thought what they heard would deal with Russia effectively. But the second part of it was the public is very hesitant to get U.S. troops involved in a war in Europe. So they want that, what they would consider effective dealing with with Russia, but not the commitment of U.S. troops. They're in favor of sanctions. They're in favor of uh, supplies going to, to Ukraine. But so we tested that as well. And there were there were two thirds who felt what they heard made them feel like the U.S. would not be committing troops, as, as, as the president said in the speech. So if you want to, again, measure the idea of does what he say resonate or get received by the viewing audience, I think for a large majority there, the answer on that question was, was yes. You have been doing this kind of work for a long time, and I'm wondering, historically speaking, in terms of these State of the Union speeches, how did he do overall based on the polling that you're seeing? You know, does the Biden administration, do they judge his speech as a success or not based on the numbers that you're seeing? Well, I think there's a number of things you want to watch. The first one politically is going to be, of course, his approval ratings. And one of the things that you notice historically is that a president's approval ratings don't necessarily move very much after a state of the union. And again, that's historically, things could change this year, but the, the, the re one reason for that is the one that I've described where you get a lot of people who are already perhaps in favor of the president or, or paying attention to him who tune in. Um, but having said that, his approval rating is a key thing to watch because it's so important as you head into a midterm year. And the story of Biden's approval rating so far in his term has been that he started out really strong. He had approval rating in the low 60s at the start. And then where it really took a tumble was after Afghanistan last summer. And, and it declined. And along with that decline, we saw drops in his ratings for things like being effective which you know, some might argue went to sort of the core of, of his larger argument. And once it went down, it never really recovered because then through the fall, you had two things. One was inflation, which people told us was really driving their evaluations. 
And that kept weighing down on his approval. And then also with the spike again with Omicron and the rise in coronavirus cases, people feeling like that effort wasn't going as well. Um, that also sent weight on it. So, you know, we've got him at 44% as I speak to you now. Um, that's probably, I think you can objectively say that's probably lower than, than a president would want to be uh, heading into a midterm year. Um, so that's the key thing to watch. That's, that's a, a really important thing to watch. And that's the reason it is where it is today, Jeff. Well, I, I've been thinking about that number for some time because, you know, I'm wondering if it, you know, you're at 44%. Is that just a, a, a snapshot of what national politics is nowadays? We live, as you know, in the society where, you know, we're almost evenly divided, red and blue. Um, President Trump's numbers at the time, you know, he had a hard time getting above 35%, uh, it seemed. You know, are we just at a point where uh, independents are up for grabs? You know, Democrats and Republicans, they're going to, you know, they're going to, the numbers are going to stay around 40% for any president. I mean, is that is that just where the bar is based on where we are as Americans? I, I'm so glad you raised that because it's such important context, Jeff. You, if you look back to presidents, go back 20 years. You know, right around the, you know, the turn of the 21st century, you would see a president from an opposing party still pull in some approval from opposing partisans. You know, some Republican voters would give a Democratic president some credit. We saw that, you know, with Clinton. Then you had, you know, George Bush after 9-11 got sky high approval ratings, including from Democrats. You would see some of that crossover. But in the last 20 years, and in particular, um, even in more recent uh, presidencies, certainly with President Trump and at the end or the second half of, of President Obama's term, you see this real like this cap on what opposing partisans will give in terms of ratings to a president. And it's, it's so pronounced, Jeff, that it's not just that they won't give an opposing president high ratings no matter what. But they also don't rate things like the economy as well when there's an opposing president in the White House, even though one might think, well, hey, you know, the economy, that's an objective measure. You're looking at the stock market, you're looking at, uh, you know, the unemployment rate, et cetera, um, or how you're doing yourself. But, but that kind of partisanship has infused those numbers. And, and on the same, in the same vein, it kind of puts a floor under a president, too, because his own party is not going to, you know, is not going to widely give him give him disapproval. So it puts this real boundary on how high we see a president go and how low we see a president can go. And right now, those boundaries do seem to be somewhere there around in the in the 40s, maybe high 30s you know, maybe come up and touch 50, but that seems to be about where it is. And that's such important context whenever people talk about these approval ratings, Jeff. Yeah. And so I want to ask you this next question from both Republican and Democratic perspective. So if you're in the GOP, you're in the House, uh, you're the uh, RNC, how do you take advantage of these numbers if you're looking toward the midterms? The first thing you look at at the midterms is where competition can happen. And let's riff on that off of the, the conversation about partisanship. You've got a lot of congressional districts now that have been drawn such that they're lopsided to have either a whole lot of Democrats in them or a whole lot of Republicans in them. And often where parties had control of the process, they drew those those districts that way. So in that sense, you're not really talking about this year a lot of districts where you're going to be able to move the needle very much and flip a lot of them. So it's probably motivational. This is probably that probably becomes turnout. You get enough of your folks uh, who are already partisan to turn out in a lot of these districts, then a party's going to win. Uh, a heavy R or a heavy D district. And the other part of that is when you look at the, the ratings of a president over time, 
you know that historically things often break against a sitting president, a sitting first term president. And one reason for that is that the president's own party, perhaps maybe they're worn out from the last presidential election, maybe they're not as motivated, but you often find the partisans from the opposing party who are really eager for that for that second chance to vote, you know, vote against in a way the the sitting president. So I think there again, it becomes a, a motivational factor. And we'll see, you know, we'll see if, if what happens as we go as we go forward. That's really the the way in which a president's rating can play into this, um, and, or at least one way, Jeff. Well, in that said, so if you're sitting in the White House working for this president, was the State of the Union really a campaign speech with an eye toward the midterms? In other words, we, you know, we heard him say, you don't defund the police, you fund the police. Uh, he talked about manufacturing in America so that we don't have these supply chain problems. Um, you know, those are the bipartisan notes that I suspect could appeal to people in the middle or even people on the right side of the fence uh, as you head toward the midterms. Um, taking those in, in order, uh, there's certainly, I think, concern among Democrats that the party would be seen as, by some as having moved uh, on some issues further left than they would like. And if you, you know, I'm sure you'll find Democratic, you know, pundits or, or consultants who will tell you and some will argue that they uh, that they've moved too far left. But others will say, no, no, wait a second. You know, in order to win, especially in a lot of these districts that the Democrats have an advantage in, they'll say, well, they need candidates who are more progressive. They need to offer a more distinct message from the other from the Republicans. So you're going to see the party have that argument and you raise one aspect of it over the course of the primaries that you're going to see unfold now in, in April or in May and June. And as we go into the fall, so watch the candidates that run on the Democratic side and see if the, how that that tension works out between those who are more progressive and maybe more moderate. And then on the point about the economy and inflation, there's a couple of key things. One is that voters tell us in the polling that they don't exclusively blame Joe Biden's policies for inflation. We actually break this out and ask them what's responsible for it. And while policies in the minds of some are, are partly involved, they also say, well, it was a pandemic and well, it was the supply chain. What they're after is seeing the president try to do something about it, even if it wasn't necessarily his policies that caused it. And so that becomes the measure. And I think one of the arguments you're gonna watch going forward is, is the president doing enough is the president getting inflation under control? Because on the Republican side, they're certainly talking about that, and they're certainly trying to, you know, to pin it on him. And that's one of the things that I think becomes the test then for the Democrats and the Biden and, and Joe Biden is like, is he is he seen as trying to get it under control? And then back to the State of the Union, that's where laying out these policies and these proposals. It seems like it, it reads like an attempt to uh, convince people that he is, in fact, doing that, Jeff. Yeah, and I, I think the, the phrase that we heard going all the way back to Reagan, as well as uh, George H. Walker Bush, is, does he feel your pain, right? Does he understand what the average person is going through? And what we know about Joe Biden is that over the years— you know, Scranton Joe is that guy that that people should be able to identify with. But uh, is is that something that is translating into positive polling for for them uh, or for the public? And, you know, has he been able to convey to the public effectively enough how he feels their pain? Well, you use that word effective. And I think that's really important because we test that and his 
numbers on being effective, which is one of the things I think fairly he he sold uh, during the campaign is that he, he could be effective as president. Um, those numbers have, have taken some hits over the first year of his term. At the same time, people still like how he handles himself personally. And that was another big selling point when he got elected. So to your point of is, does he show empathy? Does he show, uh, you know, being able to reach out and understand people? The answer is he still gets a majority. It's 55% at the year mark who like how he handles himself personally. It's uh, there's been a decline, though, in the number who say they think he's been affected. It went from 55 last spring down to 40% now. Um, that's not a decline probably that they that they want to see because then it speaks to those larger points of not just do you get it, but can you do something about it? And that's the transactional nature of U.S. politics, and that's one of the key things that, that any president just has to fill. Gosh, this is this is fascinating. I, I'm going to ask you another question. I don't know if you have the data yet, but in terms of the midterms, do you see the Democrats losing control of Congress? I'm not alone in saying that I think the Republicans will go into this heavily favored to gain control. That's a wide political conventional wisdom out there. There's a few reasons for it. One is the president's current approval ratings. One is the fact that there are um, so many districts which will not be competitive, that you have a very narrow playing field. And um, one is then history, right? And the history to some degree is data. We basically observe how people behave in situation after situation. Obviously, each of them is, is different, sometimes very different. But we, but you get a sense that there's, there's a, a difference in motivation between the party that's in the presidency and the party that's out of it, and it usually plays to the advantage of the one that's out. And so a president's party tends to lose seats. For all of those reasons, uh, you do see the Republicans going into this with a uh, with an advantage and an edge. And then I think the dynamic becomes what can Democrats do to kind of try to hang on or reverse that if, if, if as a starting point, as sort of, a, you know, just to, to, to get that back swinging towards uh, them. The, it's obvious they have to get inflation under control. Um, they have to get people happier with the state of the economy. For starters, and those are the things that have taken the most dramatic hit on their um, on their measurements. And then the last piece I would add is you see people getting increasingly optimistic about the state of, of COVID and the fight against COVID. Uh, that should be a positive thing. And then the question becomes, uh, can they or do they run on being effective on that? And that's something I think we'll watch closely and we'll certainly pull on that. Anthony Salvanto, CBS News Director of Elections and Surveys. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Let's discuss how the president's speech was received by Republicans across the country. John Easton is a partner at EFB Advocacy. He is a veteran, legislative, media, and Republican political strategist. John, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here, Jeff. So what do you think? There there were some applause lines there that even Republicans seem to appreciate. What did you think of the president's speech? It was, it was a strange night in, in that chamber. I think there's still remnants of, of COVID that uh, suggest we're still not back to normal. But in terms of his speech, it wasn't very good in my opinion. And, I, and, and just purely looking at it from a uh, a speaker's perspective, it wasn't a very good one. And and I believe given the political difficulties of the president at this moment in time, that he needed more of a Ronald Reagan State of the Union or a Bill Clinton State of the Union. And I mean that in a variety of different ways. But in terms of, of a being a skilled speaker, that is not Joe Biden's fault that he isn't a skilled speaker, but he did need some of, of those talents uh, to project 
more of a connection, more inspiration, and um, just more leadership to the American people. So that's one. Um, two, I didn't think that he had an objective. I, I looked at, at these big political moments, big political media moments. I mean, he's talking to millions across the country uh, for the underlying objective and strategy uh, to a huge audience. And and this speech really didn't have one. And in fact, I, I can't really remember a bold initiative, forward-looking, bold initiative that stood out. Instead, it was mostly a, a laundry list of Democratic favorites. And then three, finally, there, there was no meaningful attempt at, at bipartisanship. Uh, he threw the left some red meat um, on the one hand, but but didn't make a real offer to Republicans on on any big idea. Um, if you remember, I, I you and I you and I are young enough to to remember the the George W. Bush and the No Child Left Behind centerpiece of one of his State of the Union speeches, and you know he singled he singled out Ted Kennedy uh, from the other party and and made it known they were going to work together to get this enacted. And let's remember, President Bush was loathed by Democrats, at the, most Democrats at the time, you know, but like Biden, I, I think it was in Bush's constitution to work with the other side. And I don't know why we, we didn't see more of that from President Biden on Tuesday night. I think it would have gone a long way for him. What about, let's go back to your uh, point number one, uh, a speech more like uh, Reagan or Clinton um, are you referring to more optimism, more it's morning in America kind of thing? Uh, is that what you were looking for? A little bit of both. I think that it's both in delivery and in content. I mean, we remember that the the timing of a Ronald Reagan it was just impeccable and. And he was obviously he's he's an he was an actor, also uh, a very skilled personality on radio. I mean, he he knew this medium cold, he knew this opportunity cold, and uh, it was he was tough to beat. Um, and then with Bill Clinton, it was just that um, I feel your pain, that connection, um, that and he also had incredible timing, his pauses, his able ability to project. And project some emotion and some, um, uh, like I said, some empathy. And and everybody's talking about how Biden needs to show more empathy. And it's just not part of his nature. Yeah, he's a backslapper and he's Uncle Joe, but he he still doesn't have that empathetic gene that Bill Clinton had. And as a Republican, I would watch these. Gosh, how many did we watch? I mean, he was in there for two terms, and I would I would always watch with some some envy uh, from our side because he he just he had it and Joe Biden doesn't have it he has a lot of talents political talents he's been in in this arena for a long long time as everybody knows um, and I feel like he was trying to do something that he is trying to be something he's not if he just be more of himself I think he he would have had a uh, a better grade from me I watch him when he's on on the way to the rostrum He's talking to his colleague, he's backslapping, he's smiling, he's joking, and then on the way out doing the same thing. And, and that, that's his natural talent and his natural um, – that's what he gravitates toward. And, and I feel like it was completely missing from his speech, uh, any sort of outreach to the other side. I think there were there are probably some Democrats out there who who would take issue with what you just said. Any sort of outreach to the other side, there was no bipartisanship. I mean, he he said, uh, you know, this is not about defunding the police; it's about funding the police. He talked about uh, creating jobs so that in America, so that there aren't supply chain problems. And those are some of the lines that you could see the Republicans in the uh, in the chamber. Uh, they seem to appreciate it. They seem to agree with it by standing up and applauding. So isn't that bipartisanship? No, that's not. I mean, I I, I know what you're saying. And in terms of content, I mean, you look at the unity agenda that he spent a little bit of time. I think he actually could have spent more time on it. Uh, look at uh, some of the issues that he covered. Those they're all great issues, and and I think that vast majority of Congress and the public agree. But let's say with opioids, why, why wasn't he he naming Senator Portman and saying I'm going to work with Senator Portman and 
and whoever, Senator Hassan or, or you know, from, from the Democratic side, but, but actually by name saying we are going to work together on, on this and we are going to get it enacted this year or, or whatever time frame you want. What about with, with ARPA-H, the, the, uh, the healthcare program for, um, for biomedical research funding? Why not say I've, I have worked with, talked with, and, and going to pass this with Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri, um, who is who's probably the lead Republican on this in Congress. You know, both Portman and Blunt are retiring at the end of, of, of this year. So there's actually no cost to him politically. There, he's not helping them in, in, in any sort of a, of, a, of a race. So I feel like there were missed opportunities. The Violence Against Women Act, he spent some time on that. Great, great issue. But it's also a great issue to show that you are working with, you know, both sides on this. Why not mention that you're working with Senator Ernst and Murkowski, along with Senator Durbin and Senator Feinstein? I mean, I feel like he missed opportunities to really reach across the the line. I mean, Reagan would do that in a in a heartbeat, and he did it all the time, and Clinton did it as well. I mean, I, I I'll give you a line from. Uh, President Clinton's 1996 State of the Union, because I was thinking about this in, in, in our interview, and, and he said, I quote, I compliment the Republican leadership and the membership for, for the energy and determination you have brought to this task of balancing the budget. And I thank the Democrats for passing the largest deficit reduction plan in history. He was all about credit. You know, he knew that if he gave credit, um, it would ease the path towards uh, so much of this hostility. I mean, let's face it, Republicans weren't exactly Bill Clinton fans, but he knew that this was in his best interest. Reagan knew the same thing. I just don't know why it's so hard for for Joe Biden to uh, utilize the same tactic. What do you think he did well? I feel like um, he he did, he talked about Ukraine well, uh, at at first, I thought that that this was going to be a very good uh, entree for this speech. Um, you know, it 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 obviously has so much uh, goodwill from from both sides. I think we know we're all we're in this together, except for some you know factions here and there. But you had the Ukrainian ambassador in the in the gallery. It, it was set up very well for him. And and although I, I depart from that slightly when. Uh, when he he talked about sanctions a little bit more than you know as as a as a useful tool, probably a little more than he should have. There was a a news correspondent on the ground in Ukraine who said it to some Ukrainians. It it, it felt like President Biden was taking a victory lap on 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 uh, talking about sanction economic sanctions and flights banning flights from Russia to the United States. So I I, I felt like he did. Well, probably better on that than than the domestic pieces, um, but you know it still left some uh, uh, something to be desired. All right. So as we head toward the midterm elections, how do you think Republicans, both in the House and Senate, stack up against Democrats and President Biden? Well, I think the conventional wisdom right now is that. It's going to be a very, very tough, long night for Democrats. And I'm always one who who has seen – who questions conventional wisdom and has, seen, and has seen it go the other direction many, many times, as I'm sure you have as well. So I'm very I, – I have a healthy skepticism about um, uh, about about the optimism on the, on the Republican side. However, I, I don't see any – the kind of uh, turnaround or or attention to the types of things Democrats need to do to uh, to calm this tidal wave that's coming in their direction. Look at the responses to the Democratic responses to the State of the Union. Um, I I just uh, I was I was kind of saddened by that honestly, and, and and this doesn't come from any partisan place. It's it, it's because I see that uh, a new trend. I see that if this is occurring now and, and, and it's laying bare the factions and the Democratic Party, next time there's a Republican president, State of the Union, I, I fear we're going to see the same thing. And it's, 
it's, you know, is it sure? Is it a beneficial for Republicans to, to see that and watching them eat their own, as they say? Yeah, it, sure, it, it is. But I, I fear that we're taking a tradition that was um, was a good one, a, a good tradition, a lot of theater, a lot of pomp and circumstance. I understand that. But still, it's a useful tradition, and it's going the way of so many other things in American politics. But, um, I mean, just based on your last point, um, there are a lot of divisions within the Republican Party as well. The Republican Party isn't, uh, isn't always united. Uh, you have Lauren Boebert, who was uh, heckling President Biden. Uh, so there are fractions within the Republican Party as well, even though there is optimism about the midterms. I agree with you. And uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a, is a good example. Uh, anybody stands up and yells at the State of the Union, there's no, there's no place for that. It's just, it's just not. And, and, and actually, I, at first I thought, well, don't give them any oxygen. Don't, don't report on it. But I, they should be called out. And, and I would say that to any member Republican or Democrat, it's not the place. It's uh, unbecoming of a of a member of Congress, and it should, you know, the the leadership should try to tamp down that, that on both sides as much as possible. But but in this case, particularly the Republican side, I do believe though that that in general the mainstream media gives uh, outsized attention to to these types. I I also <laughs> believe that. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez gets that's too much uh, too much coverage. Uh, Talib, uh, uh, those in the squad on uh, on the Democratic side, and and those on the Republican side, like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and 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 others who uh, or is Matt Gates or those. I mean, I look at it and and being a and I was in the Senate for for you know fourteen years and 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 knowing who really has. The power who has the uh, who is writing legislation, passing legislation, uh, it it is not them, and uh, yet they go out and they and they shoot off their mouths and they get they get uh, the coverage. And so I would just remind folks that you know while they they love to mouth off, they're they're really not the ones that are um, affecting real power and, and change when it comes to the halls of Congress. Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell. Even they seem to be at odds in terms of policy. That is a time-honored tradition in Congress, isn't it, uh, between the two chambers? And sometimes, like right now, uh, well, you watched during the Obama administration, they had the, I'm sorry, the Democrats had the majority in, in both chambers, and it was, uh, it, it could be very nasty uh, between the, the, the two. And I I believe that they've, they've by and large they have kept things pretty cool uh, and 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 no fights have spilled out in, into the public. But uh, it is difficult. It is a very very difficult job. It's it's a difficult job just to herd cats in your own caucus, as they say. But it is also extremely difficult to work with your counterpart in the other chamber, and it only gets harder when you have the majority. So I, I would just say, and I think they both know that, they're both seasoned pros, especially Mitch McConnell, who's been majority leader. If Kevin McCarthy becomes speaker, I think there's certainly this tendency that, you may be, you know, whether it's Pelosi or Gingrich or whoever has been in there, that uh, you say, well, I'm the speaker of the house. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm this, you know, this is, I'm, I'm the big dog now. Well, you are, except you have another big dog on the other side of the, of the Capitol. So, Yes, it's it's a very difficult job. I don't envy them at all. And I and I think that, you know, so Kevin McCarthy obviously still has work to do if the House does flip to Republican. He, he's got to shore up those votes. Uh, it sure looks like he is at this point. I mean, he's raising so much money for his colleagues across the country. I, I and, and in this in this game, it is it is about money. It's about a lot of things, but it sure is about money. And and Kevin McCarthy is taking care of that uh, that chore for sure. John Easton, thank you for your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Let's continue this analysis of the president's State of the Union speech with Daniela Gibbs-Leger, who is the executive vice president for communications and strategy at American Progress. Now, prior to joining American Progress, Leger served as a special assistant to the president 
and Director of Message Events in the Obama Administration. Daniela, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. All right. So what what did you think of the president's State of the Union speech? It, it, it seemed to me that he was sending more of a moderate message to the American public ahead of the midterm elections. What do you think? You know, I thought it was a really good speech and I thought it was a strong speech. You know, I think that there was there was something in there for everybody to like, right? Uh, even for, for those on the right uh, when it came to what he said about Ukraine and our involvement there. Uh, but, you know, I think it, he did a good job of laying out for people what's really been going on the last year. Like he acknowledged that people are still suffering, but this administration has done a lot of things to keep this economy from completely tanking in 2021. And I was personally relieved to hear him tick through all of that and and make a very clear case for why his policies have helped us recover really fast. But we've already seen some criticism from uh, you know, people in the Democratic Party, far left part of the Democratic Party, don't defund the police. The president said fund the police. And that didn't make a lot of people happy on, you know, the progressives happy. Yeah, look, um, I didn't personally love that line either. So I'm not going to sit here and, and try and defend it. I I knew where he was going and and anyone who's followed Joe Biden over his decades of of service knows that you know he is generally supportive of you know of police policing criminal justice but also criminal justice reform and I think the point he was trying to make is that it's not about necessarily defunding the police but it's about funding programs and solutions that work not necessarily I don't think just dumping money back into police departments that have been proven to be ineffective, but looking at community policing solutions, putting more of that money into community-based solutions that don't necessarily involve the police. So I I definitely didn't love that line. Um, But if you look at the things that he's been talking about and supporting, I... I don't know how it got in there, but I I don't think that's really, really what he meant, because he's been very clear that criminal justice reform is something that needs to happen. You don't think that's what he actually meant? I I mean, I just, I have to look at what he's been talking about and what he's been doing. And so I don't think like this administration is supporting just taking money and just putting it into police departments across the country. Because that's not what they're doing. Like, I do think that he believes that some departments need to ramp up their community policing. And so, yes, that would mean sending more money to departments. But it's not just a blanket, we're just going to send a bunch of money uh, to police departments across the country with no accountability, without thinking through what this money is being used for, without maybe we're going to redirect some of that money, like I said, to things like violence interrupters, stuff that he mentioned uh, in his speech. So like like I said, it was a very clunky line. It doesn't comport to me with what I know his administration has been working on and doing. As the Biden administration and Democrats head into the midterm elections, his numbers aren't great. And the midterms could be a referendum on him, uh, and it could potentially hurt Democrats' efforts to maintain control of the House. What What do you think the Biden administration needs to do to shore up its support heading into the midterm elections? I think they have to continue to talk about the good things that are happening. It's very... It's very easy. Like, I understand why the numbers are where they are. People are tired of this pandemic. People see rising prices at the gas pump. And, you know, it's, I can, like I said, I can see why his numbers are are suffering right now. But I, I do think the economy has been improving. And I think it will continue to improve as we get closer to the midterms. But this administration and all Democrats, they have to start talking about this. They can't, you know, shy away from talking about the things that are good because, yes, gas prices are, are high right now. Talk about why they're high. Talk about why the entire globe is dealing with inflationary pressures. And then talk about what you were trying to do to fix that. Talk about 
the policies that you're trying to put forward to cut people's costs, to help offset the other rising costs. Talk about the fact that last year, people on average in America had more money in their pocket every month since pre-pandemic. That didn't just happen. That wasn't just an accident. That was done because Democrats and President Biden, with no Republican support, passed the American Rescue Plan. Now, when you say the American Rescue Plan, unless you're a nerd like me, you probably aren't going to know what that is. But So talk in also in real terms that people understand. Hey, we passed the stimulus bill. It did these three things that helped save the economy last year and put more money in your pocket. Hey, we have a plan to help cut childcare costs, healthcare costs, and we're just, you know, working on trying to get a deal together that everybody can support. Talk to people in language that they can understand, not in the DC, you know, policy speak that we get into sometimes, and and sell what is again like the fastest growing economy in decades, the the fastest number of jobs created after a recession ever. Like talk about this stuff, be realistic about the issues and challenges that people still face. Let's talk about the fact that, you know, this recovery has been slower for women. Why? Because of childcare and uh, all the problems we have accessing that, but then talk about your solutions. And I, I think that the narrative has gotten away uh, from Democrats. And I, that's why, again, I was happy to see President Biden lean into and tick off the things that they have done. Do you, do you think some of the Biden administration message is overshadowed by some of the progressive elements of the party? You know, I I don't think so. I I really do. And, you know, maybe maybe I'm wrong because <laughs> I've been in D.C. for a long time. But I feel like some of those arguments are really ones that are had within like political circles within D.C. That's not a conversation that people are having around their kitchen tables out in the rest of the country. You know, the rest of the country is not thinking about what, you know, AOC or, or somebody else is thinking about X, Y or Z political issue. Right. So I, I think that's a it's a narrative, again, that the media likes to talk about because it's interesting. Um, I don't actually don't think it's interesting at all, uh, but it's, you know, it's political like baseball, right? Political theater. But to the average person out there, I don't think that's what's obstructing the message. The governor of Iowa, who gave the Republican response uh, to President Biden's speech, brought up uh, the border. What she said is that the president hasn't been to the border, nor has the vice president been to, to the border. We've, I did a little fact checking, and it is true that when the vice president went uh, down south to talk about immigration, she did not actually go to the border. Uh, there are a lot of people, Republican and Democrat, who are concerned about border security. Um, do you think that the Biden administration has failed uh, in some aspects of its policy as it relates to dealing with border issues? No, I don't think so. I mean, look, it's a it's a very tricky issue. There, there are lots of uh, complicating factors for uh, what's happening down at the border. I personally believe, and I said this when, when people were raising this months ago, that you know, it's political theater, um, the whole, oh, well, you haven't gone to the border, you haven't done, I, I personally don't care where somebody goes, I care about their policies and what they're trying to enact. And I want to see that they're actually trying to do something to stem the flow of undocumented uh, folks coming across the border. And, you know, the vice president did go directly uh, to those places in Central America and have those tough conversations to figure out, like, what is causing people to flee their homelands and make that dangerous journey. I don't I don't believe that they need to go and physically stand on a border um, in order to show that they are trying to, you know, fix this fix this problem that has bedeviled many, many administrations. What did you take from the president's speech that you think is really positive and really a strength heading into midterms? It remains to be seen how 
things are going to to play out in Ukraine right now, and and to the extent that the American people care about foreign policy. So caveat all of that, but I think it was important for him to talk about the way they've handled the lead up to this um, invasion. And I think that when the history books are written about how this played out in the very beginning, that this administration will get high marks for bringing along our allies, for making sure that the people for whom this is in their backyard, Europe, were, you know, with us a hundred percent that we weren't getting out ahead of them. Um, and that we were strategic with releasing declassifying information so that Putin was really backed into a corner and he could not use his usual lies of, you know, propaganda about being goaded into war. Like nobody believes anything that he's saying because we've been saying for months that this was going to happen. So I think that's, that's one thing. Um, you know, and again, I really do think that the speech, I thought the speech ended Overall, I thought it was a good speech. I thought it started really well. And I thought it ended very strongly because, you know, he acknowledged that the reason why this country is strong is because of the American people. So regardless of what we're going through, regardless of where we are with COVID, it's the people in this country that make us who we are. And I think just reminding people of that is is very important, that we as a people have agency in, in how we respond and how we react to these various unfolding tragedies and all of that. So, you know, I thought I walked away from that speech. I always get nervous before anybody gives a big speech, uh, just because that's my nature. But I walked away feeling positive, energized, and optimistic about the coming months. Uh, The the fact that um, some of the Republicans listening to the speech in the chamber stood and applauded at a few points during the speech. How did you feel about that? Um, You know, that's, again, political theater that happens in that room. But I I think... I'm not surprised that happens at every state of the union. They're going to be things that um, members of the opposing party support and, you know, they will, you know, stand up and cheer or, or whatever. And I, I think the, it was good to see the, the unifying support for the people of Ukraine that came um, during the speech. Uh, it is unfortunate that there are lots of members of that party who are kind of, spouting Putin's line when it comes to what's happening. Uh, But in that room that night, I think it was good to see that. And, you know, regardless of who's up there, uh, every now and then somebody's going to say something that people of the opposing party are going to support and they're going to stand up and and be raucous so they can uh, be clear that everybody can see that they're supporting what the president's saying at that time. Daniela Gibbs-Leger, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been more than a week since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine, and that was the issue that dominated the top of President Biden's State of the Union speech. It is, of course, happening overseas, but it is hitting home as well. Nick Timrose is the chief economics correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So how are Americans feeling the sting of this invasion here? Well, they're not feeling it yet, but it's uh, likely that they are going to feel it probably at the gas pump uh, later this spring. And that is because the actions taken by the Western uh, powers, by Europe, Canada, the U.S., to impose very stiff sanctions on Russia's economy. Uh, You know, Russia is a big exporter of, of oil and natural gas. And so you, you're already seeing oil prices rising to their highest levels since uh, 2008. And so, you know, the U.S. Is, is less dependent on foreign oil than it used to be, but it's still, we're still a, a big importer of oil. And the impact is, is not going to be as bad here as it is in Europe. Europe is far more dependent on uh, Russian oil and natural gas, but it is going to have an impact. So that will be the place where most Americans experience this directly. And it's coming at a tough time because inflation is already high in the U.S. and in many other countries around the world right now. 
What about at the supermarket, at the grocery stores? Are they going to feel it there? Isn't Ukraine one of the largest exporters of grain? Yes. So uh, Ukraine is a big wheat producer, and uh, Russia has, even though a lot of the uh, attention is on oil and gas, Russia produces a lot of other commodities which go into other goods. So fertilizer is a big input, of course, into food, into agricultural production. And even if uh, the U.S. doesn't rely directly on uh, on products from Russia, U.S. trade with Russia is not significant. It's not, for example, anything like what we have with China. But uh, if it drives up global food prices, that could eventually have an impact in the U.S. You also, uh, metals, th things we probably don't spend very much time thinking about, like palladium, neon, um, those are key components in uh, semiconductor chips, and there's already been a shortage of those. They go into production of cars. You're seeing uh, VW uh, uh, this past week saying that they may be halting car production in Germany. And so at a time when we already have a lot of disruption in global supply chains, this is just one more thing that the world economy, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not good for the problems we've been having with uh, busted supply chains and high inflation. So there's a chance it's going to aggravate all of that. And the, the total impact of that remains yet to be seen. What about the impact, in your view, uh, on the Biden administration heading into the midterms? Well, yeah. So inflation is politically unpopular. Nobody likes having to pay more for food and gas. And, uh, and the reason this is a real challenge for the Biden administration is because it's not clear that there's very much they can do about it. The main responsibility for dealing with inflation in the United States actually rests with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve meets every few weeks to decide whether to raise interest rates or to lower interest rates. And the way you deal with high inflation potentially is to raise interest rates uh, that reduces demand, right? People who if they if they have jobs, they're spending money. If they don't have jobs, they're not spending money. So higher interest rates are designed to cool down demand, to bring supply and demand into balance so that prices don't continue to rise. Now, normally, you know, textbooks say that when there's some kind of shock like this, the economists call this a supply shock. If there's a bunch of oil that's no longer available, that's a negative supply shock. And the textbooks say central bankers should really ignore that because even though prices are going to go higher, demand will go lower, the two will offset. And if you think over time that the, the shock will, will reverse, then you know monetary policy doesn't have to react to that. The problem is that assumes inflation isn't already high. And because of what we saw last year in the U.S. economy and the global economy where inflation did rise to 40-year highs, you had all of these disrupted supply chains meeting strong demand. More people are buying you know, goods, patio furniture and uh, appliances and cars. And our capacity to produce these things uh, wasn't able to keep up. So prices went up. And so the result of that is it's much harder for the Fed and it's much harder for other central banks around the world to sit on their hands and say, well, this is a negative supply shock. We're not going to respond to that because essentially that's what the Fed did last year. And, it, you know, you have you now have an inflation problem. How complicated is I mean, what you outline there probably sounds complicated to a lot of people. Um, but how complicated is this kind of economy when you have this invasion in Ukraine, you have COVID, uh, you have so many different factors uh, playing into the economic picture, and yet you still have a relatively low unemployment rate. So how complicated is this kind of equation for the Fed? Yeah, it's it's very complicated. You're right. The unemployment rate has been low. Uh, it, you know, it rose as high as almost 15% when the pandemic hit. It fell back to 4% at the beginning of this year. Um, and so we've really seen an economy, you know, this wasn't a normal recession. And we don't know what the economy after the pandemic is going to look like. So just putting aside a war in Eastern Europe for a minute, there were already a lot of questions this year 
that economic policymakers, uh, whether they're at the Fed or in the White House, were having to wrestle with. For example, we don't have as many workers right now as we did before the pandemic. We're about 3 million workers shy of where we were in February of 2020. So one of the questions this year was, will more people come back to the labor market or will we continue to see you know, labor shortages, businesses complaining that they don't have enough workers, wages rising at their fastest clip in years? During the pandemic, we saw a big shift in the composition of spending away from services because you couldn't go out to eat, you couldn't travel towards goods. And so, you know, that sent prices of goods higher. Will that composition shift back? Will people now that the pandemic is, you know, hopefully fading, uh, you know, be able to go and kind of back to their normal spending patterns or not? And does that lead to some kind of moderation in inflation or does it send up prices of all of the things that we weren't spending as much money on for the past few years? There are questions about supply chains. There are questions about the impact of having less fiscal stimulus in the economy. Uh, people saved up a lot of money during the pandemic, right? And so were they going to continue to spend down their savings uh, or would they, um, you know, would they change their, their spending patterns as that happened? So that was, these were already, you know, very uncertain times for economic policymakers and now you're adding another shock, a war, uh, on top of all of this. And so it's just going to make things even more difficult and even more uncertain. That said, how do you – how would you grade how the Federal Reserve has managed this storm? Well, a lot of the people I talk to give the Fed good marks for their response early in the pandemic. There was a financial crisis in March of 2020. Uh, you know, think about your own life where you were, if you were uh, working away from home and then you were working from home and you weren't spending money anymore. I mean, if, if millions of people stopped spending money, if thousands of companies no longer have revenue, that has all the ingredients for a huge financial shock because we're just not prepared for something like that to happen. So the Fed stepped in and lent very aggressively uh said to, you know, to, whether it was to the banking system or to businesses more broadly, if you need credit, we will, we will provide it. And the Fed had never done anything like that before. Uh, and so the initial response, uh, you know, not that everything was perfect, but the Fed gets generally high marks for that. I think where you're hearing concerns right now is after the Biden administration passed their $2 trillion spending plan a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, should the Fed have removed some of that support faster? Uh, you know, some of this is just, it's easier in hindsight to say, well, of course they should have done that. Um, the, the supply chain disruptions were not anticipated to the degree that we saw them. You know, last year used car prices were up 40%. That's not something you expect to see. It's not something you would forecast. And it's not something you would expect to continue. But nevertheless, the Fed at the end of last year pivoted away from providing stimulus, said, all right, we're going to have to raise interest rates now. And their meeting uh, in the middle of March, uh, you know, the Fed chair, Jay Powell, has, has signaled that they expect to begin raising interest rates. And they're also, you know, talking about raising interest rates more this year than they have in any year um, since the early 2000s. You have a new book out this week. It's called Trillion Dollar Triage. I love the title of the book. Um, it's a it's a catchy title, Trillion Dollar Triage. It's about the U.S. economic policy response to the COVID shock. So what specifically prompted you to write this book? Well, I wrote about a lot of what was happening here in Washington as the pandemic was hitting. And uh, these were just, they felt like unprecedented times, They're, you know, there's um, a financial crisis happening and the Fed moving very, very quickly to stop it, far faster than what you saw in 2008, um, perhaps because there was a recognition from 2008 that if you do more, if you promise to do more up front, you may actually end up having to do less. And that was what happened here. Uh, but there was also the added challenge of, you know, there's this virus and we we know how to deal with it now, you know. We have vaccines, we have masks, it, you know, the, the new variant seems to be less severe. Uh, but early on, there wasn't a lot of knowledge, right? We had the government telling us, don't go out and buy masks, you don't need masks. 
Um, and so you had both the challenge of dealing with this very frightening economic situation, but people not able to get together in conference rooms for, you know, late night crisis management. Everybody's doing this mostly from their home offices. Now, Congress can't really do, you know, you can't vote on legislation over Zoom. So you did have lawmakers, um, you know, particularly in the Senate. Uh, and and so, you know, it just it, it felt like a very um, unique moment in American economic history. And I thought, you know, there was a there was a story there about really what what we avoided uh, in addition to the, you know, the the uh, carnage that we saw. You remember the lines of cars lining up at food banks. And I think today now we're two years past that and people look back and say, well, uh, you know, we, we avoided the worst. We didn't have another Great Depression. Uh, but part of that, I think, has to factor in the policy response. Uh, you know, there's nothing to say that uh, the unemployment rate had to stop at 15%. If businesses had failed, if companies had been unable to borrow, unable to make payroll, uh, you could have seen uh, much more permanent uh, scars on the U.S. economy than what we faced. How much of the response to COVID uh, financially do you think was informed by the response to the 2008 crash and the, the lessons learned there? I think a lot of it. I think a lot of the lessons uh, there, you know, if, if you want to criticize the response today, you might say maybe they maybe they overdid it. Right. Maybe the virus wasn't, you know, once you got past that first wave of lockdowns, we did kind of learn how to live with it. We tolerated probably a lot more death and um and, you know, overwhelming of our hospital system than you might have expected early on. But, uh, you know, the, one of the criticisms, perhaps, of the of the response will be that we actually didn't need to spend all the money that we did spend. Um, but I think we did that. I think the country did that in part with an eye on the 2008 downturn. And not just that that downturn um, itself was so bad, but look at how many years it took to get back the jobs that we lost in the in the housing bust, it took five six years to get the jobs back. It took years to get economic output, uh, what we call GDP, back to where it was before. Fast forward to now, uh, you know, even though we're three million jobs shy, that's largely because people have left the workforce. The unemployment rate is almost back to where it was two years ago, which is a remarkable development. Uh, and there there may have been some matter of luck involved, right? There was there was some luck that we didn't get hit with some extremely crippling variant of the virus that, you know, once people masked up, the commerce was able to happen again. And, um, but at the time, there wasn't a lot of, you know, foresight or visibility that that was going to be the case. Look forward to the book, Trillion Dollar Triage. Nick Timros, Chief Economics Correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jeff. That is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Begay's CBS, where you can send program ideas. What do you want us to look into? And follow me on Instagram at Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America Changed Forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.